Well, I want to begin with a spoiler alert. Next Sunday morning, we're going to talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, uh, how his resurrection changed everything for the original disciples and how his resurrection can change everything about our lives. Today, in preparation for next Sunday and in preparation for the rest of your time on earth, uh, we're going to look at a, a cluster of scriptures, especially in the Gospel of Mark, that make clear that what it means to follow Jesus is really incomprehensible apart from the death and resurrection of Christ. Unless we understand that he was crucified on our behalf and then rose again from the dead, we just won't get who Jesus was, what, what he's about, what he calls us to do in this life. And so what we see in the Gospel of Mark is that the crowds didn't understand Jesus. Even his own disciples didn't understand Jesus before the crucifixion. It was only after the resurrection that they understood what it meant to follow him, the type of life that he was calling them to live. And so today we're going to examine some of the scriptures that make this basic point. And understand that this isn't merely a history lesson. We're not merely going to uh, dwell on how clueless they were. Uh, we're also going to see that these scriptures are a warning to us and they're an instruction to us because if we ever take our eyes off of Jesus, if we ever are not mindful that he died on our behalf and rose again, never to die again, uh, then, then we won't understand. We'll distort the Christian life in all sorts of ways. We'll, we'll think the Christian life is just a list of rules to do, or we'll ask the question, what's the minimum amount, amount I can get, get away with and still please God, versus asking, how can I have a life-giving, interactive relationship with the living Lord? And so first we'll notice that before his death and resurrection, nobody understood what it meant to follow him. And then we're going to, to talk about uh, the, the uh, converse of that, how after the resurrection, those of us who live after the resurrection, we can not only understand what it means to follow Christ, that way of life is also accessible and it's actually possible through the spirit that he gives to those who believe. And so the first point is really an observation from many different texts in Mark's gospel. And we've got an outline in your bulletin if you want to follow along there. But it's really an observation, namely that Jesus often obscured his identity from the crowds. It's very counterintuitive the way Jesus acted and the way he spoke. A lot of times Jesus did pretty much the exact opposite of what I would do if I had his power and I had his ability to draw crowds like Jesus did. Uh, but but uh, it's really fascinating. And the first way I want us to notice this is in the secrecy commands. When you read the Gospel of Mark, you see it over and over again. Jesus would heal somebody or he would cast a demon out of somebody and then he would tell them, I forbid you to talk about it. You have to remain absolutely quiet. This is a secret. And we wonder why that's the case. It, it's really striking why he does that. It's not an absolute thing because sometimes he did uh, miracles in public. On one occasion, he told a, a man, go and tell your family what's happened. But many times he would have this secrecy command. Now, there's probably eight or ten examples in Mark. I want us to just consider a, a few. In Mark 1, 40 through 45, Jesus heals a man who had leprosy. <clears throat> and a leper came to Jesus beseeching him and falling on his knees before him and saying, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And so that's an expression of, of faith. 
And moved with compassion, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. And so his heart went out to this man. And so in a very bold move, he stretched out his hand and he touched this man. And in that day, if you were leprous, you were ritually unclean and you were, were required to keep your distance from other people. But Jesus didn't just look at the man. He didn't just stretch out his hand toward the man. He touched this man and he said, I am willing be clean, be cleansed. And Jesus, when you saw Jesus, you saw the Father. And so Jesus was just like his heavenly Father who loved to give good gifts. He was never stingy. He was never reluctant to to give what people needed. Verse 42, immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. And then here's the command. And he sternly warned him and sent him away. And he said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone But go, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded as a testimony to them. And so he said, fulfill the requirements of the law. Go to the priest, show yourself, bring the offering that's required, and that'll be a testimony to the priest and to the whole temple staff. But, and he sternly warned him, he said, tell tell no one anything about what I've done. Guess what? Verse 45. But he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the news around to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city, but stayed out in unpopulated areas, and they were coming to him from everywhere. So that's probably what Jesus wanted to avoid. He wanted to avoid being mobbed by crowds everywhere he went. And so he he commanded the man, don't tell anybody anything, but he just could not keep quiet about it. So much so that he couldn't even enter a city, so he stayed out in unpopulated areas. But as you know, if you've read the Gospels, people found him. Where's Jesus? Okay, and they showed up. When we get to Mark 6, we're going to see that 5,000 people showed up in this unpopulated area where Jesus was and they wouldn't leave. And so he kept teaching, they kept listening. It became late in the day. Jesus had two options. He could send them to the surrounding villages to find food, or somebody had brought a lunch. He could multiply the fish and the loaves. And that's what Jesus did. And so that that happened in an unpopulated area. When John records the the feeding of the 5,000, his emphasis is that that the crowd completely misinterpreted who Jesus was, the type of kingdom he was, was offering, and that they were prone to misappropriate the power. They wanted to misappropriate the power that Jesus had. And so we read this in John 6. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. And that you can understand how they thought. They're like, a man with that type of power, he would be a great king. (laughs) He would be amazing. He could defeat the Romans. Israel would have the, the prominence that she deserved. But Jesus did not come to be that type of king. He was not establishing that type of kingdom. He came to establish a kingdom one heart at a time. And that kingdom would require him to die for the sins of the people. And the crowds, they had no category for that. And so Jesus perceived what they wanted. They wanted to take him by force and make him king. And so we read again that he withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. 
He was very aware of the way the crowds thought and how they just didn't get who he was and what he was about. And they, they really couldn't before the, the crucifixion and resurrection. You know who got it? You know who understood better than anybody else in the Gospels who Jesus was? The demons, these unclean, evil spirits that tormented people. And so you read throughout the Gospels that people who were, were tormented by evil spirits, they either came to Jesus or they were brought to Jesus for deliverance. In Mark 3, this is representative of what commonly happened, Mark 3, 11, and 12. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, you are the son of God. True statement, right? And Jesus earnestly warned them not to tell who he was. And it's, it's, it's hard to say exactly what's happening here. In that day, it was thought that if you knew somebody's identity, you had power over them. So it may be that the demons were trying to exercise power over Jesus by saying, we know who you are. You are the son of God. I tend to think that they just spontaneously fell down and they professed who Jesus was when they were in his presence, someone that powerful, someone with that, that much authority. Whatever the case, uh, Jesus commanded them to be silent, not tell anyone who he was. Uh, Jesus did not want demons doing evangelism for him, okay? They could make true statements about Jesus, right? But they could never communicate his heart. They could never represent him before others. And so you find in the gospel these, these, this, this impulse to obscure who he was to the crowds. We'll see he was different with his, his followers, but to the crowds. And one way was through these secrecy commands. He also obscured his identity through parables. In Mark 4, we have an extended discussion about the role of parables. And we read in verse 1 that, again, this great mob of people had gathered. And so Jesus got in the boat, and he went out a little bit into the sea, and he turned to the crowd who was on the seashore, and he taught them. And what we're told is that he taught them in parables, which were stories that had a spiritual point to them. In this case, he told the, the parable of the four soils, where the human heart was likened to four different types of soils. The condition of your heart depends, it, it, depend, it uh, determines whether or not you're able to receive God's word and receive the, the teachings of Christ. And at the end of that parable, he said what he often said, he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And so if I said that, I said, if you have ears to hear, here, you'd be saying, some of you can understand, some of you are not able to understand. And so uh, in verses 10 through 12, we read this. The disciples wanted to know, okay, what's the deal? Why do you teach in parables? As soon as he was alone, his followers, along with the 12, began asking him about the parables. And he was saying to them, to you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. And so in the Gospels, in the New Testament, a mystery is not like a murder mystery. It's not like some riddle to solve. It's something that is hidden. And in this case, it was something that was in the Old Testament, and we can see it now, but it was really kind of hidden what it meant and that it, that it was true. For example, part of the mystery of the Gospel is that not only Jews but Gentiles were included in the kingdom and in the household of God. Another aspect of the mystery is that Jesus is the suffering servant who would die for the sins of the people. It, it was in the Old Testament, but it was really hidden. So he says to the disciples, I'm telling you these mysteries. I'm giving you these mysteries. 
but those who are outside get everything in parables, so that while seeing they may see and not perceive, and while hearing they may hear and not understand, otherwise they might return and be forgiven." And so the crowd's got everything in parables, and the parables at once uh, obscured truth because it, was, it wasn't, not everybody had ears to hear, but it, the, the parables also revealed the condition of the hearts of those who heard. And so on one occasion, the scribes and the Pharisees, it says that they understood that Jesus was talking about them when he told the parable about the landowner who sent his son and the people who were tending the land, they killed him. And so they understood that he was talking about them, that he thought he was the son of God, God sent him, and they were going to kill him. When they understood that, did they fall down in repentance? Did they, were they contrite? Did they want to have a change of heart? No, they began plotting how to trap him and how to, to do away with Jesus. So the parable revealed the condition of their hearts. And so they, along with most of the crowds Jesus addressed, they fit Isaiah's description of being spiritually blind and deaf. The parables re reveal the condition of the hearer's hearts. You know, when I was a freshman in college, uh, this was before I was a follower of Christ, and uh, I was in a Sunday school class. I'm, I was a church guy. I was a church kid my whole life. And so I was in a Sunday school class, and the assignment was to read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which is part of C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. And I'm, I'm a little bit embarrassed to tell you this, but I read that whole book, and I loved it. And I had no idea that Aslan was a Christ figure. I really had no idea. And I read the story about, you know, um, uh, Edmund, you know, betraying his siblings and Aslan dying to, to bring him freedom and then Aslan coming back to life. But it never occurred to me that that was a picture of Christ. And I wasn't antagonistic to the gospel. I just didn't think about Jesus. I didn't think about the resurrection. And so that parable, it, it really, it, it meant nothing to me in terms of uh, Christian faith. And that's what parables did in Jesus' day. They, they obscured truth to some people. Now that we've got the gospels and we've got the spirit, the parables are rich for those who believe and they, they reveal truth. But that was the, the case in Jesus' day. And so in a number of ways, Jesus concealed the truth from the masses. And many times it was because he didn't want to throw pearls before swine. But Jesus had a very different method of teaching his disciples. And we see this in passages such as Mark 9. We see there that Jesus spoke to his disciples very plainly about his mission and his identity. Especially toward the end of his ministry, his time on earth, uh, Jesus made clear to his disciples what he was going to endure. And so in, in Mark 9.30, we read this. From there they went out and began to go through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know about it. For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. And so that's pretty clear, right? He said, I'm going to be delivered into the hands of men. They're going to kill me. Three days later, I'm going to rise again. And we would imagine that for the disciples, that, that would be hard to hear. It would be hard for them to soak in. But it, it's not complicated. On one level, you would, you would expect that they would kind of 
get it and understand what Jesus was saying. But we read this in verse 32. But they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. And I think that it was simply that they had no category for a crucified Messiah. That just made no sense whatsoever. So whatever Jesus was talking about, he couldn't have been speaking literally in terms of that was what was actually going to happen to him. In the parallel passage in Luke, in Luke 18, we read that the disciples understood none of these things, and the meaning of this statement was hidden from them, and they did not comprehend the things that were said. Of course, Jesus understood that they didn't understand things, and he actually told them, I understand you don't get this. He said, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will teach you all things. And so he said, there will be a day when when the spirit descends upon you, then you will understand. But before the, the, the crucifixion, before the resurrection, before the spirit was given, they would not even the disciples could not understand. And we'll see this this weekend, that, that this coming weekend, that the disciples were incredibly confused. They were incredibly demoralized after, after the crucifixion. They were not expecting a resurrection. So they, they were, were demoralized. It wasn't until after the resurrection that the disciples understood these, these what we would say are clear statements that Jesus made. Another way to say it is this, what it means to follow Jesus is incomprehensible apart from the gospel. And so we're talking about the gospel here. Or if you want to say it positively, that when we understand the gospel, what it means to follow Christ is understandable, it's accessible, and it's possible. If you believe the gospel, then then what it means to follow Christ, it opens up this whole new world that you never knew existed. And so if we fast forward about 20 years, the Apostle Paul is looking back, and he wrote this to the Corinthian church. In 1 Corinthians 15, he wrote this. He said, now I make known to you, brothers, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And then here it is. Here's the gospel. He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance, so this isn't peripheral, this is of first importance, what I also received. So he didn't make it up, it didn't originate with him, he received the gospel, he made it known to them, here it is, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. That's exactly what Jesus said would happen. That is the gospel. And so the gospel, it's, it simply means good news. And so it's, it's an announcement. A gospel isn't a command. The gospel isn't a command. Go out and clean up your life, be as good as you can, and maybe God will accept you. No, the gospel is this this good news that Jesus has died for your sins. He rose on the third day as this glorious vindication, as this glorious statement by God that everything Jesus said and did is true. And it's a gospel by which you are saved, and it includes this sin. He died for our sins. He rose again. And so a Christian is not merely someone who's really committed to doing good things. 
A Christian is someone who says, I was sinful enough that someone else had to die in my place. And I believe that was Jesus. He died in my place. He rose again on the third day. And because he is risen, he has sent the spirit to dwell within me. And so if you believe the gospel, you are born from above and following Jesus becomes this life-giving, interactive relationship with Jesus himself who dwells in you through the promised Holy Spirit. If we ever lose sight of the death and resurrection of Jesus, what it means to follow Jesus gets distorted. And so again, I talk to people sometimes and, and I, one, one person told me, I don't think I could become a Christian. I don't have enough time. As if it's going to be, okay, here's one more list of Christian things you have to start doing. No, it's, it's a relationship that God changes your heart and it's an interactive, dynamic relationship with the living Lord. And that's, that's what the, the premise of the entire rest of the New Testament. If you read Acts, you read the, the epistles, the letters that Paul and James and John wrote, it's just everywhere. Unless Jesus died and rose again, it's just silliness. For example, in Philippians 4, Paul said, I can do all things. He said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. If Jesus wasn't alive, if Jesus didn't, wasn't giving him power and giving him the will to obey through the Holy Spirit, that's just nonsense. But he said, because of, of Jesus is alive, because he lives within me through the, the promised Holy Spirit, he gives me the will, he gives me the power to obey God. And so if you understand that, if you understand the gospel, this life is possible. Let me give you an example of what this might look like in uh, everyday life. Tim Keller tells this story. Tim Keller was a pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian in, in New York City. He tells a story of uh, there was a young woman who came to the, the church he was, he was pastoring, and uh, she would come a little bit late, and she would leave a little bit early, and that's a technique. We see it here at Faith, too, people that don't want to get buttonholed by church people, and uh, pastors love to hunt those people down and talk to them. And so uh, Tim Keller found this woman in the foyer one day, and he introduced himself and she said, yeah, I slip in and I slip out. I'm not sure I really believe what you do, but I'm intrigued. And he said, how did you find out about Redeemer? And she told this story. It turns out she, was a, she worked for a TV network in New York City. And after she'd been working there for only a few months, she made a very serious mistake, a career-ending mistake. But before she could be fired, her boss went in, to those that were hired, her boss went in and said to them, this was actually my fault. I didn't train her the way I should have. Uh, I didn't prep her for this assignment that she was given. And so if you have to be mad at somebody, be mad at me, but don't be mad at her. And he had all sorts of credibility. He'd been there a long time. People respected him. And so he went in and took the blame. And when he did that, he lost a lot of credibility. He spent a lot of social capital. But this woman found out about it, and so she made a beeline to his office, and she wanted to know, what is up? Why did you do that for me? And she just kept, he just kept kind of pushing her off, saying, hey, it's, it's no big deal. Don't worry about it. But she kept pressing. She said, I've had bosses that have taken credit for the good things I've done, but I've never had a boss who took the blame for something bad that I've done. 
And so again, this is New York City. And he said to her, he said, okay, you're forcing me to say this, and I'm only going to say it one time. I am a Christian. And I live my life for the man who took the blame for me. And that pretty much shapes everything that I do. She said, where do you go to church? And so I love that story because that's a picture of a gospel-shaped life. That guy wasn't asking the question, okay, what's the bare minimum I have to do to just get this Christian thing off my plate? This was a man whose life was shaped by the gospel. And all sorts of scriptures come to mind. One of the main ones is 2 Corinthians 5. 14, which says, for the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died, therefore all died. And he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died again and rose on their behalf. That was a man who was no longer living for himself. Normally we would say, how can I get ahead? I don't care who I have to throw under the bus. I'm going to make my way in this world. But this is a man who said, no, I'm living for Jesus. Jesus did that for me, and so that's what I'm going to do for this person. And so it, it radically changes everything if you really understand the gospel, that Jesus died on our behalf, was raised on the third day, never to die again. And if you believe in him, he dwells within you through the promised Holy Spirit. Are you intrigued by that life? Does that sound like a fascinating way to live? Does that sound like a better way to live than anything you've ever heard before? Well, my, my invitation to you is to, is to believe the gospel and preach the gospel to yourself day in and day out in all the details of your life and ask yourself the question, if Jesus really died on my behalf and rose again and he dwells within me through the promised Holy Spirit, what difference does it make in this situation? And so I'd invite you to do an exercise. We've got on the bottom of the, the bulletin there a little reading guide for this week. We just put five scriptures there that all, they each mention the, the Jesus' death and resurrection or they allude to his death and resurrection. And so take one of these a day for five days and, and we've got a couple questions there that are basically prompting you to ask, what if I really believed the gospel? What if believing the gospel wasn't something I did a while back just to check a box, but what if I actually believed the gospel in everyday life? How would it shape the way I think and speak and act. And so my encouragement to you is to let God surprise you with the beauty and the power of the gospel. Heavenly Father, this is what we want. We want to see you do this deep work in our lives. As individuals and as a church, we want to be shaped by the gospel. Now we, we get the impression from Scripture that if Jesus really did die on our behalf and, and he rose again, that those who believe are changed forever. In radical ways, we are changed forever. We look uh, like Jesus, and we're conformed to his image. And so, God, would you continue this good work in our lives? We want to see you. We want to experience you. We want to, to experience the fruit of this way of living. And so open our eyes this week. For the person here who's incredibly discouraged and can't imagine that this life would be available, God, would you open his or her eyes to see, give that person the will to believe and to, to trust you, believe the gospel, and experience this life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.